Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. Yes, before you say it, before you think it, I know it's been a while. We'll catch up soon, but I just want to dive right into this episode reflecting on Juneteenth after the first time we commemorated it as a national holiday. I know, I know, we're already weeks past it, but here's why I think it's important. We need to talk about it now, even though in 2021, the day has passed. It's important to talk about it now because we got to get the narrative right. We've got to get the narrative around Juneteenth right. We got to get it tight and we got to do it at the beginning and we got to do it proactively. So what I want to do is walk through some of the history in a little bit more detail. Don't worry, it's not going to be too, too much, but just give you a little bit of context around the significance of this historically. Then I want to talk about today, the present time, and what we do now that Juneteenth is a national holiday. So let's get right into it. A lot of people have been pushing for Juneteenth to become a federal holiday, and that happened on June 17th. 2021. On that day, President Joe Biden, with the support of Congress, signed into law the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. It is the first new federal holiday in nearly four decades. It went into effect immediately. I had Friday off, and I was so glad for a four-day week that I didn't know it was going to be a four-day week at the start of that week. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a huge deal now that Juneteenth has become a national holiday. Um, that's for a lot of reasons. Folks have been pushing for this for decades. Uh, I even wrote about why Juneteenth should be a national holiday in my first book, The Color of Compromise. And I gave uh, essentially three reasons there. Number one, I thought Juneteenth should be a national holiday because it's one of the most important events in U.S. history, right? Like this isn't simply black history. It is that. But just given the entire story of the nation, emancipation, the abolition of race-based chattel slavery, uh, the, 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 the achieving of freedom for millions of people of African descent in these United States is an epochal moment in the history of our country. And it should, at the very least, be acknowledged. And this was no small deal, right? So, so race-based chattel slavery was the economic base of the South. And by the way, we should all know this, every part of the country participated in, in it, right? Because where did all that cotton that enslaved black people picked, where did it go? Where did it get shipped to? Oftentimes it got shipped to the East Coast, to the Northeast for uh, textiles and, and, and other products, so everybody was implicated in this thing, especially on a financial level, and they actually had to go to war. Did you know that even 150 years later, the Civil War remains the United States' bloodiest war, the war with the highest number of casualties? And we had to fight a civil war to finally abolish race-based chattel slavery. And if you've been listening to me for any amount of time, you've heard me say don't let anyone convince you that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. And you don't have to take my word for it. I've read to you time and time again the uh, Articles of Secession from the state of Mississippi, but you could go to any number of those Articles of Secession from uh, the, the states that seceded and formed the Confederacy. But in the Mississippi Articles of Secession, it said, quote, 
our cause is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any more direct than that. And it took a war to finally abolish race-based child slavery. And of course, we should acknowledge that. The other reason why Juneteenth should be, and now is, a national holiday is it's a rare opportunity to celebrate progress. I know, I know. Like, we know white supremacy and racism, they never go away, they just adapt. But, but, there are moments of change. There are moments of clear and undeniable progress. And the abolition of race-based chattel slavery is one of those moments. And so it gives us the opportunity to actually reflect and say, you know what? Progress is possible. We can celebrate that we no longer enslave people for life and treat them as property legally, right? Obviously, obviously, there's more to go. And I'll get to that in a second. But my goodness, I'm thankful that there's no more race-based chattel slavery in the United States. And that leads to the third reason why it's important that Juneteenth is a federal holiday is it gives us an opportunity to reflect on how far we still have to go. So most of you listening, that's immediately <laughs> where your minds jump is like, yeah, great. Race-based child slavery, great. It's gone. Uh, but what about all of the forms of racism that still exist? What about all the ways that white supremacy continues to permeate our society? Well, having Juneteenth as a national holiday gives us a national moment to actually reflect on that and not just talk about it piecemeal here and there or as it comes up, but an annual remembrance. And it, and it becomes sort of part of the culture and, and part of the tradition in this nation. And I think if we do it well, that can be healthy. So now it is a federal holiday. I should make clear, though, from a historical standpoint that that um, so Juneteenth, of course, is a uh, portmanteau, I believe is the fancy word for it, but it's a mashup of the words June and 19th. Uh, and it stands, it represents the day when um, enslaved people in Texas first learned of their emancipation in Galveston, Texas in 1865. So, um, that's it stands as the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the United States but we should know that June 19th wasn't actually the day slavery was abolished or that the civil war itself didn't abolish slavery what happened was a couple of things number 1 you had the emancipation proclamation that went into effect January 1st 1863 but you may or may not know this, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't actually um, free all enslaved people. It was actually somewhat limited in its scope. So it, it freed enslaved persons in states that had seceded, but not in slaveholding border states that had sided with the Union. So there were some border states that didn't break off, but they still had slavery. And the Emancipation Proclamation did not free those enslaved persons. And then even in the Confederate states, the proclamation didn't apply to areas that had already uh, succumbed to Union forces. And so it was limited in its scope, but it was still sort of a, a, a promissory note that Lincoln and, and his government would abolish slavery. But it was all contingent 
It was all contingent on the Union actually winning the war, which as of early 1863 was by, f- by, by no means a foregone conclusion. So uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, important as it was, didn't actually emancipate enslaved people. Nor did the end of the Civil War itself emancipate enslaved black people. It actually took a constitutional amendment, the 13th Amendment, to to legally abolish race-based chattel slavery in the United States. And even then, it was limited because there was a clause there that said you couldn't enslave people unless they were duly convicted of a crime, which, of course, led to other forms of unfree labor, such as convict leasing. So that's a bit of that history. Now, as we talk about Juneteenth and this proclamation, usually people don't go any further than that. They say Juneteenth, okay, that's when enslaved people in in, in Texas heard about their freedom. Well, there's a couple of things we should do to delve into to more detail on that. Number one, um, let's think about the timing. So, so like I said, Emancipation Proclamation, uh, January first, eighteen sixty three. Uh, these folks didn't hear about it till June eighteen sixty five. So that's Two and, a year, two and a half years after, news traveled slowly, right? And, and not only that, this is two months after the defeated Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox in Virginia, effectively ending the war. There were still some battles and skirmishes that took place after that, but that was the big thing. And so the war had all but ended, and it still was two more months before the folks in Galveston heard about it. So that's one point on the timing. But but let's go into more detail about what the enslaved folks who are now hearing about their freedom actually heard. So it was delivered by Major General Gordon Granger, who had been in Louisiana and then w- uh, was taking over Union forces in Texas. And he read General Order Number Three. This is the the announcement that the, the that the folks heard uh, on that day. And General Order Number Three is just a couple of sentences. I'll read them to you. The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. So that is the full text of the General Order Number 3 that folks heard in Galveston, Texas on June 19th, 1865. Let's break it down. So he says, in accordance with a proclamation, that's the Emancipation Proclamation from the Executive of the United States, that's Abraham Lincoln, all slaves are free. Full stop. All slaves are free. Yay! Applause, cheers, claps. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hearing that as an enslaved person? All slaves are free, coming from a union general. It's what you've dreamed of all your life. It's what your uh, parents and grandparents and their grandparents and parents, that they prayed for. And here it is, all slaves are free. And then it goes further. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. So it's not just that you're free, it's that you're free and equal. 
That's what the, the order said. Of course, we know that didn't play out in real life. But that's important that that was stated. And then it goes on to say that, that, that now, instead of the relationship of master and slaves, it's employer and employee, or employer and hired labor, as the text says. So in other words, uh, instead of being enslaved, you'll still work, but you'll actually earn wages. By the way, we could go into a whole thing on reparations because that 40 acres and a mule thing, which was general order number 15, that never came to pass. The, the, the labor that these people who are now freed had put in as enslaved people, that was never remunerated. And that, that remains true on down to this day, but that's another episode. Then, listen to the last couple of sentences. You can hear white people hedging on black freedom, which has always been the case in the United States. It said, the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. Remain quietly at their present homes. Do you know what that, that means? Number one, remain quietly. Okay, you black folks, I know you're excited, but don't get too excited. Don't y'all go partying in the streets and having cookouts and being loud. Keep it down. Remain quietly. Where? At their present homes. You know where their present homes were? The plantation. Shut up and stay on the plantation. And work for wages. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a work situation where you had a bad relationship with your boss? Has that ever really dramatically improved? And that's when you were hired and you were working for wages. And that was what was understood from the very beginning. Imagine that you were enslaved and you were now told to remain where you were and continue to work for your former slave holder, but now for wages. You think that relationship is going to be all right? Things would be desirable. Things would be positive, collegial, collaborative. Mm, I doubt it. <laughs> but that's what these now freed people were told to do. And then the last sentence says, they are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts. In, in other words, they won't be allowed to assemble at union forts. Why would recently freed people do that? Because black freedom has been contingent on the use of force to enforce their freedom because the forces that would withdraw that freedom and return black people to bondage were ever present. That remains true to this day. It may not exactly be race-based chattel slavery that people are trying to limit black freedom with, but it's always some form of unfreedom, whether that's uh, uh, limiting voting rights or uh, harsh penalties and consequences and sentencing in, in, in mass incarceration, what have you. And so black freedom, especially in this era, always depended, um, unfortunately, on force to enforce. And so black people would collect or gather at military posts. They would also go there for direction, you know, if they didn't want to remain quietly on the plantation where they had been uh, forced to work, where would you go? Because you didn't have familial connections outside the South or your, your close by vicinity. You didn't have money. That was the big thing. Just 
one day you're in, in shackles, the next day you're not, but you don't have any money. So what are you going to do? So anyway, the military is saying, yeah, don't, don't, don't come to us. And it goes further. It says, and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Black people who are blood and sweat literally built the wealth of this nation. I was reading recently that a typical day in the life of a sharecropper, so this is even after race-based chattel slavery, uh, it's just it's just the life of a, 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 a rural farmer, uh, particularly a subsistence farmer or, or a low-wealth farmer, get up at 4.30 in the morning, take care of the livestock, then they go to the fields, then they come back around 7 a.m. for breakfast. Then they go back to the fields. Then they come around 12 o'clock for lunch. Then they go back to the fields and work till the sun goes down. They call it working from camp to camp. From can't see in the morning till you can't see at night. Then go to bed around 9, get up the next day and do it all over again. Can you imagine... Folks who have lived like that day in and day out, not only for their whole lives, but for generations, being accused of idleness? Can you imagine that the big fear of white people now that black people are free is that they won't work hard? But that was the argument. The argument was for pro-slavery people, and even for some abolitionists who may not have liked race-based chattel slavery as an institution, but really didn't think all that much of black people, the argument was, well, at least when they were enslaved, they were working. But if we free them, they'll be lazy. They'll be idle. They'll be waiting for a handout. They'll be looking for the military or the government to support them. Y'all, if you believe that, that's racist. You're saying that an entire people group who picked the cotton, cleared the fields, did all of this to make the United States the most materially prosperous nation on the face of the planet. You're saying that an entire race of people is not prone to working hard? Get that out. Get that out your brain. Or the folks you know, get that, get that out their brain. So I just wanted to make that point. So even in general order number three, where it said all slaves are free, you can hear once again, America hedging on freedom for black people. So that's a little bit of the history there for you. But here we are in 2021 and Juneteenth is a national holiday. And I was one of the ones arguing that it should be a national holiday, but in the couple of years since I published The Color of Compromise and wrote that passage, I've had some time to reflect. Some time to reflect on the unintended consequences of making Juneteenth a national holiday. So this is actually in um, my first opinion article for the Boston Globe, but I wrote about some of the 
some of the not so great things that might happen now that this thing is a federal holiday. So first of all, um, we may lose the specific focus on black people. One of the unintended consequences of making Juneteenth a national holiday is that we may lose specific focus on black people on a couple of levels. Number one, Juneteenth historically has been a holiday celebrated by black people for black people and in black communities. So now that this thing is mainstream, it might lose some of its sort of cultural distinctiveness and flavor. But not only that, now that you have people besides black people commemorating Juneteenth, there may be the attempt. In fact, I'm almost positive there's going to be the attempt to make this more or less a colorblind holiday. It's going to extract the specificity of Juneteenth, which had everything to do with race-based chattel slavery. Every ethnic group, every racial group has their own story and history, some of it very hard and painful. This is not the oppression Olympics. This is not about comparing people groups, but it was black people who, because of their race, were enslaved. Never let us forget that. And as we celebrate or commemorate Juneteenth on an annual basis, don't let people excise the racial specificity of this institution. This was about anti-blackness. This was about white supremacy. And this is about black people overcoming all of that to gain their freedom. It's not just blandly or broadly American. It's black Americans, black people. So let's not lose that specificity. The second unintended consequences uh, of making Juneteenth a national holiday is it promotes a flattened and superficial view of history. Oh, this gets me. As a historian, this gets me. So, so every time we have a, a national remembrance of some big event in our history, we get super, we're already bad at history, but, but that event becomes really flattened and superficial in terms of its history. So, so you can envision people, and they're probably already doing this, people saying, oh, slavery was bad, but then Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and now racism is over. That's the logic. Like, yeah, you know, we had this bad thing happen, but then, um, you know, there was this war, there's this proclamation, and now everything's better. But understand, literally thousands of books have been written just about this period of time, the 1860s and, and the years thereafter. There's so much nuance and detail and, and, and understanding that we need to have about slavery, about the Civil War, about Juneteenth, about what came after. And my fear is that in acknowledging Juneteenth on an annual basis, we're just going to skip over that history and we won't use it as an opportunity to actually dive deep into the history around those, those events and those institutions. 
The third way, or the third unintended consequence of making Juneteenth a national holiday, it can promote this erroneous idea of American exceptionalism. By American exceptionalism, I mean the idea that uh, the United States is uh, this special, God-blessed nation that is on this inevitable march toward progress, this uninterrupted stride toward freedom, when that's simply not the case. I believe it was Angela Davis who said, freedom is a constant struggle. And the fact that race-based chattel slavery was abolished came through struggle, literal conflict in the Civil War, right? And even after that, it's not as if black people or other people of color were, were completely free. So as I've often said, racism never goes away. It just adapts. Do you know what came after Juneteenth? We have this very brief period from about 1865 to 1877 called uh, uh, Reconstruction, reconstructing the nation, particularly the South, after the Civil War. And it was a period of incredible hope and promise for black people to be involved civically and politically, economically and educationally. And indeed, we made incredible strides, lots of historically black schools being founded, lots of black people uh, being elected to offices, voting, you know, all of these things. But right after that came this haunting period called redemption. For Christians, redemption should be a good news word. That's a word of salvation. That's a word of uh, liberation. But in U.S. history, redemption means white redeemers, taking back the South for the white man. And that was the period right after Reconstruction, which is when federal troops pulled out of the South, which was a compromise to give uh, 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 um, uh, uh, the presidency. After that came redemption, which inaugurated the period of Jim Crow and lynching and race-based segregation and discrimination and all of that stuff. So, we don't want to look at Juneteenth as promoting this idea of American exceptionalism that somehow, in spite of all our challenges, we inevitably find a way through them, find a way to overcome them. The fact is that freedom is precarious, and it's always on the brink. And we must always be vigilant to protect the freedoms that have been hard fought and won by the people who came before us. And then lastly, one of the unintended consequences of making Juneteenth a national holiday, y'all watch out for backlash. Watch out for backlash. Anytime you promote some aspect of black freedom, white supremacy is going to rear its ugly head louder and more forcefully than before. So even right now, we're seeing this war on critical race theory, this manufactured controversy over critical race theory, as well as things like the 1619 Project, both of which seek to tell a more accurate and fuller picture of racism historically and in our laws. And isn't it interesting I can't remember the last time the U.S. Senate voted unanimously on anything, but they did 
They unanimously passed the bill to make Juneteenth a national holiday. But some of those very Republican senators are backing uh, bills to make voting harder for black people and other people of color and the poor. They are supporting bills that would ban what they define as critical race theory or even the teaching of something called like the 1619 Project, which are designed to help us understand racism um, in this nation better. And yet they're passing (laughs) a law to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. It boggles the mind. But when you look at U.S. history, it's actually par for the course. So those are some unintended consequences, and we need to be wary of those. And and you'll hear me um, say uh, this, commemorate versus celebrate. And that gets to my last point. This one's going to be really tough for some people. But my theory is that as American an event as Juneteenth, meaning it's not just black history, it's U.S. history, something that we should all acknowledge and um, remember and seek to honor in its own way. As much as it applies to everyone and as important as an event it is, maybe black and white people shouldn't be commemorating Juneteenth the same way. Hmm. So I wrote this in an article for The Witness, um, and I said, uh, you know, why black and white people should commemorate Juneteenth differently. And there were a lot of reasons. I give some of the historical background. Um, But basically, you know, black and white people had very different roles (laughs) in race-based chattel slavery. Even if you were not a slaveholder, as someone who has been defined as white. You're in a system designed to give you benefits at the expense of black people. And nowhere was that more clear than in race-based chattel slavery. Uh, So for black people, Juneteenth should be a day of celebration. It represents the clear triumph of black liberation over racial subjugation. Obviously, there's still more work to do, but Juneteenth reminds us that anti-racist change is possible. Black people cannot consistently pursue justice without moments of joy. And Juneteenth is the rare occasion for black people to be joyful about racial justice. So, you know, that's barbecues and cookouts and, you know, fully vaccinated gatherings or, or even simply a day of rest. I could go off on a whole soapbox rant about resting from our pursuit of civic and social justice, not because it's not important, not because there's not still work to do, but because we need breaks and we deserve breaks occasionally. But that's another story. So all people should should commemorate Juneteenth, but, but for Black people especially, it should be a day of joyful celebration. But what about for white people? Juneteenth has to also be a day of somber remembrance and lamentation. Somber remembrance and lamentation. White people got to be careful not to erase the suffering and the brutality of of slavery in favor of this celebratory message of perpetual 
progress, that, that idea of American exceptionalism. And they should not celebrate as if they had nothing to do with the conditions that made black emancipation necessary in the first place. This country didn't have to enshrine race-based chattel slavery into its laws, its policies, religion, and identity. And if more white people had confronted the dehumanizing forces of greed and hate and authoritarianism, then this, quote, peculiar institution might not have been institutionalized at all. And so you've heard me say again and again uh, the word commemoration rather than celebration. And commemoration may be a better word than celebration for white people to use when it comes to Juneteenth. White people should certainly commemorate it, pause to acknowledge the historical importance of the day. But a pure celebration seems out of place for remembering the demise of an institution that was premised on the superiority of white people. So what should you do? How should you commemorate it? Um, always supporting black-owned businesses and organizations, but also black Christian ministries, black nonprofits. Um, and if you hadn't made your donation yet, you can make one today, right now. I happen to know of an organization <laughs> that could use your financial support. Go to thewitnessinc.com, thewitnessinc.com, and make your donation today. But just in general, right? You can use that uh, uh, the, uh, Juneteenth as an opportunity to support uh, Black-owned and Black-led uh, endeavors. Also, it's an opportunity, if you're white, to educate other white people. You may have read the book. You may have watched a documentary. You may have listened to this podcast. Have your friends and family. Has that racist family member who you always dread talking to, have they listened to, have you engaged them recently? And I know it's hard. I hear the stories. I hear of white folks being estranged from their family members and friends and losing relationships. And, and I say, well, welcome. There's solidarity in suffering. Black people have been and continue to suffer because of racism and white supremacy. We do appreciate your efforts, but use Juneteenth as an opportunity to continue to educate other white people about slavery and its legacies. Should be a day for white people to also committing to fighting uh, contemporary ideologies that prop up white supremacy, like, like white supremacist domestic extremism, which the Department of Homeland Security named in uh, 2020 as the biggest threat to domestic security, white supremacist extremism. And also Christian nationalism. You've heard me talk about this before. That is the real threat. People keep saying critical race. No, what is the threat and what is actually the enemy in the camp is Christian nationalism. And so use Juneteenth to, to fight back against continued forms of racial oppression. And of course, it can be an opportunity for white Christian churches to remember the people past and present who have suffered for the sake of true liberation. Actually, we should all do that. Um, but I believe in 2022, Juneteenth's going to fall on a Sunday. So think about how your church might commemorate Juneteenth in a respectful, somber, historically accurate way. So we could go on and on and on about how to celebrate Juneteenth. I think it'll be an evolving thing. I think we'll 
figure out ways to do it. Uh, some will be better than others, but um, you know, just bear in mind that you know this is a a racialized event and issue, and not all people need to commemorate it in the exact same fashion. So, as we round out this special episode, I want to mix up a couple analogies here. Freedom is not like a light switch that turns on or off. You have freedom or you don't. Freedom is more like a dimmer switch where the light of freedom can brighten or darken. And on these days following Juneteenth, don't let the light of freedom grow dim. Also, don't think of Juneteenth as simply one day out of 365 days. It's not just about June 19th. It's about liberation. It's about freedom. And that is an all-day, everyday thing. If this new holiday, Juneteenth, is about freedom, then Juneteenth is really a journey. And that means as a nation and as a people, we have to daily commit to taking strides toward freedom. So those are my reflections on Juneteenth. As we look back on the first time this nation has celebrated it as a national holiday, and as we look forward to Juneteenth 2022 and beyond, but also as we think about continuing Juneteenth as a journey that we take strides on each and every day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.